because I had this horrible fear that I might get hit by a bus and would forever be known as the guy who wrote those monkey books. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious. And hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Dealing with big dumb objects, AIs, and interstellar war with Gareth Powell. I'm Becca. I'm Paul. And we want to welcome Gareth Powell to the show. Welcome, Gareth. Hello. All right. So let's start off with your elevator pitch for your novel. Right. Embers of War is a space opera set in the aftermath of a um, galactic conflict and it follows a group of characters coming to terms with what they did during the war while simultaneously trying to rescue a downed liner that's been shot down in a, uh, a very strange solar system and finding themselves embroiled in a political plot that could restart the entire conflict. That's a good pitch. Thank you. There's um, a lot more happening in there, obviously, but that's the, that's the, the nub of the, the plot. Okay, so... You're mostly well known for the Akak Macaque series, and you've done other novels that have been set with space in some ways, like the Recollection. So, what prompted you to go straight into big on full screen, widescreen space opera? Well, as you said, I just finished the um, Akak Macaque trilogy for uh, Solaris Books, um, and quite frankly, I desperately wanted to get back to space opera um because i had this horrible fear that i might get hit by a bus and would forever be known as the guy who wrote those monkey books <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to get back to what i love and as you say i started off with space opera with the recollection and so on so i thought um i thought i'd, I'd like to get back to it and it's around about the time ian banks died as well mm. i felt felt that was like a big loss and i wanted to kind of i wanted to kind of not difficult to explain but i wanted to write a space opera because he couldn't if you see what i mean and so i just thought i'd get back to it and i'd get into it and um at the t- at the time i just i'd written a rebound novel as well after the three monkey books so i, I wrote a novel which i like i called a rebound novel because i'd come to the end of one relationship and i, I had to uh which, which is only exists in my kind of electronic sock drawer at the moment because it's never going to see the light of day um but after I struggled for a year writing that, I, I wrote Embers of War in a few months because it all just poured out of me, this huge adventure and these characters that, that I'd wanted to talk about and wanted to explore. And I'd also just read Emma Newman's book, Planet Fall. Mm, yes. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. I think if that had been written in the 70s, we'd now hold it up as one of the classics of science fiction. It's it's that good. And but it was completely written in the first person, which surprised me because I'd never considered writing a novel in the first person myself. Um, and I thought, well, Emma's done a brilliant job of it here. 
um, and it really gets you inside the character's head, I'm going to give that a try. Um, and so I came up with these sort of five or six viewpoint characters and tried to give them all their own voices and their own characteristics. And then I just kind of sat down and let them talk. And it was a bit of a revelation for me because I write fairly slowly, but I write dialogue very quickly. So if I was writing the scene as sort of a dialogue between the narrator and the reader, it all just came out a lot more quickly because the characters had their own voices and I could just kind of write how they would speak. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of galloped through this novel at a great pace because it, a, it was fun and B I was just letting the characters talk. Did you have any trouble keeping track of which POV you were in ever? No, no, uh, because I knew, you know, a different chapter was a different viewpoint. So it was, is quite well broken up and, and they were doing different things. I did occasionally find myself writing a sentence because one of the characters is, is masquerading as a poet. So she tends to write for quite flower, flowery uh, descriptions and, and they kind of spilled into other characters a little bit. I'd find by myself going, maybe the space Marine wouldn't say something quite so uh, poetic at this point in the thing. So I, I'd had to kind of keep rain on that, but uh, otherwise it was, it was a lot of fun. I will say that my favorite character was Nod. <laughs> How did you come up with such an interesting species? Well, I wanted, I needed a species for the purposes of the trilogy that was apparently innocuous um, and spread everywhere throughout the multiplicity of, of races. And everybody just saw them as helpful little engineers get on with everything um, and so i just came up I, I just kind of sat down and sort of purpose built a sort of naturally evolved starship engineer so i thought a they'd have to have lots of limbs so they could brace themselves in zero gravity they'd have to have sort of dexterous fingers on those limbs and it would help if they had if you know if they had sense of taste and, and and sight on the end of their hands as well so they could see into small places so i ended up with this creature with basically is a big shoulder with six limbs and at the end of the limb is a hand and in the center of each hand is a a face and they can they alternate which hand or face or foot they're using as a foot or a hand or a grip or or whatever that's so cool yeah and it just it gives you a whole different way of looking at the world when you're thinking he can look up and taste and eat and he can be eating and drinking with one head and talking with the other and you know he can be fixing a computer with one head and unclogging a sink with the other at the same time um and so i came up with the whole background that they evolved on this big world tree um which is like um, a naturally evolved tree but with kind of circuits and thing naturally evolved kind of circuits and cables and things within it and they maintain that tree that's their so they're very used to being engineers because they maintain the tree and the life cycle of the tree is not much different from doing so in a spaceship with the various feed valves and fuel lines and that so yeah i i, I made him and he's uh, he seems to be a, an enor- enormous hit i've had lots of people coming up going oh my god where can i buy a plushy nod oh that would be amazing yeah, and so, you know, he seems to have been a huge, for a character who just sort of grumbles in the background for most of the book, he's just, he's just been this huge hit, so it's fantastic. I had a lot of fun writing his chapters as well, because he speaks in this pidgin English that um, once mm-hmm. once you start talking in it, it's quite hard to stop. It's almost like a kind of weird tone poetry. This is just, just the way it was like formatted on my e-reader, very 
Short, strange sentences, wires and pipes behind its walls, gurgle of fake digestion, pump of fake blood. There's a real interesting cadence that you came up with this language that's like nothing else, any other characters in the book. Yeah, it's. I, I wanted to make him alien in the fact that his his kind of... I've read a lot of books where aliens recently talk extremely good English um, and are extremely wry and witty and erudite um and i just wanted to write an alien who really struggled with the concept of grammar and his thoughts because he's an engineer are short sharp to the point kind of you know he he doesn't sit around like the poet and kind Mm -hmm. of pontificate or go for these big explanations he just says screwdriver because it's a screwdriver and he's that's his world he's he's closed into his world i wanted to reflect that through the language which uh, i think i did but um, in the sequel, we meet more of his kind, and we have conversations between them, which are quite fun as well. Oh, that sounds that sounds absolutely delightful. My favorite character, besides Nod, was Trouble Dog. So what, why don't you tell us about the origins of having an AI in a ship that's partially descended from dog DNA and has a pack of their own that Trouble Dog has an interesting relationship with? Yeah, I kind of... Um... When I was looking around, I knew I wanted a sentient space. I had a sentient spaceship in the, the recollection, which uh, came out in 2011. I just love spaceships that can talk and be grumpy and sassy and what have you. It's, it's one of my favorite things about science fiction. Um, so I, I, I knew I wanted a spaceship, but I didn't just want a computer AI that was a bit quirky like I had before. I wanted some kind of... In the history I've got, I, I thought that having completely aware AIs, as in, for instance, the culture, um, might cause, you know, there are all sorts of problems they could cause. So I kind of built my AIs that they're built actually on stem cells. The trouble dog is built from the stem cells harvested from a, a soldier who died on a battle, battlefield some years previously. So there's like a small organic section and then all the artificial intelligence stuff is bolted onto that so that there's no true artificial intelligence. It's actually an organic intelligence, but with artificial upgrades, um, kind of like Anne McCaffrey's The Ship Who Sang. Mm-hmm. But um, whereas in that book, it's like a whole human brain taken out of a human and plonked into a, um, a ship. In this one, it's it's been specifically cultured within the confines of the, the sort of processing substrata so she's never she's never been a human and a lot of what she is isn't human either it's it's she's been cultivated specifically as a ship and she's had this dog dna uh, spliced in as well to enhance pack loyalty with her um for her fleet because she's a military ship to start with so she has but the trouble with these sort of human-based ais is that eventually they start to develop unwanted emotions that you know things start to start to go awry after a while and and towards the end of the war she develops accidentally develops a conscience which is probably the last thing you want in a battleship so taking place in this huge this huge atrocity um she she just feels terrible and she decides to quit and she quits the navy um you know she says you know you can't really stop a battleship from quitting so and it it goes to join this organization called the house of reclamation which is a rescue organization a bit like thunderbirds in space which goes out and rescues crashed or stranded 
spaceships in, in distant star systems. Um, and so she's trying to make amends for that while struggling with the new feelings that are coming up inside her. Whereas before she was just like a killing machine. I think at one point she says she's a, a 14 year old girl with all the conscience of a missile. It, it's, she's all starting to develop feelings for, for, for her crew. And she still struggles because she's programmed not to feel remorse or guilt or, you know, um, sorrow at the loss of, of her members of her crew, but she's, starting to feel things for them and also she's got this huge part of herself because she's had all her weapons removed she's still programmed to kill so she's got this kind of phantom limb syndrome for these this big weaponry and occasionally she just wants to blow something up Um, because after all she's like as i say she's like a teenage brain inside a superpower killing machine so it's she's a very complex character but i think people can identify with her a lot because we're all kind of struggling with who we are and what we do and, and, and so on. And we've all done things in the past we wish we hadn't. And we're all kind of have the same feelings of kind of we and you here and everybody else knows what they're doing, but we don't. Um, and so I, I kind of, I just poured a lot into her and she went from just being a spaceship, as you say, to being, you know, pretty much the main character because she is, you know, every bit as human as all the rest of them. That's, that's fantastic. I really like, her, I mean, her relationship with her pack and this um, almost she feels like the junior member and the one that left the service. And now when, yes, you listeners were spoiling the book uh, enormously, when she actually has to confront her former, uh, her former pack members, it's there, there's, there's tension, not only on, a, on a, okay, I'm underarmed against ships that can destroy me, but these are, these are, this is my pack. How do I, how do I fight and oppose them and yet remain true to the House of Reclamation, which I've sworn myself towards? And you, I think you really captured that conflict with her, with her, with both both on an emotional level as well as as a as a purely plot level. How do how do I beat these ships that can ostensibly just uh, wipe space with me? Exactly. It, it was it was again talking about the culture with with um, Ian's ships. They're like super super intelligent. We can't imagine how intelligent they are, and they're just they're almost omnipotent. They they rarely run up against anything they can't handle, um, and when they do, they're kind of very loose about it, and like uh, and they just you know either blow it up or trick it to do something or whatever. Whereas I wanted Trouble Dog to, as you say, be really conflicted, be really out of her depth. Um, and really be the underdog, so to speak. Um, and that's why she's so human because she's, she's like, she's been hobbled by taking most of her equipment off her. So she's not this super powerful, sleek, um, GSV or anything. She's a, a you know, she's a, a, an old, not very well equipped ship. So, um, I think from that point of view, I don't think we've kind of had a character quite that vulnerable as a ship before. That's really what I wanted to to go for, kind of the opposite of a, a culture ship, uh, really, in terms of, A, intelligence, because she's not much more intelligent than a human. Um, she can just think faster. And also in terms of equipment, she's, you know, she's got the bare minimum and she's only got a skeleton crew as well. So it's, you know, it's the opposite of a culture ship in a lot of ways. So we've talked about both of our favorite characters. Who's yours? Uh, well, Trouble Dog was obviously an enormous fun to write. Um, I think the one I, I feel the most strong connection with is uh, Sal Constance. 
her sort of captain in, in inverted commas, you know, she's nominally in charge, but if anything happens, trouble dog takes over and deals with it in sort of split second rather than the slow speed a human can think. But Sal is really kind of, uh, she's the one that I, I had the most sympathy for. Cause she's the one that's lost everything in her life. Um, her parents, her, um, her partner, um, and it's and she's on the verge of losing losing what she has at the moment as well. So she's she's kind of lost everything, and she is a very lost character. But there's a little kernel of determination in her that she's going to see things through. She's going to see things out, and she's surrounded by people who can help her. Like um, Alva Clay, the Space Marine, is kind of the opposite of Sal, but it's kind of everything Sal needs. Because she's brusque, she doesn't mess around. She's, you know, she's, she's got muscle. She's the muscle of the outfit, and she's just, she's just finding a way to kind of a reason to go on. In some ways, I think she's very lost. But having the trouble dog and having her friends and having a mission are kind of things she clings on to to kind of pull herself forward. And I think I really kind of enjoyed her kind of emotional journey throughout the book. You've put in so much into this novel. I mean, we have, we've only scratched the surface. You have a spy versus spy subplot within this novel. So why don't you tell about the origins of how you decided to insert basically two intelligence operatives who know each other and have dealt with each other and now have to kind of cooperate even as they're both headed towards this distant star system and intersect with the main plot. You got things going at so many angles here. I don't even know where to begin to talk about that. Uh, well, well, the two spies, um, because this whole story takes place in the background of a war that's finished, but it's still kind of the hot part of it's finished, but it's still kind of simmering, hence the title Embers of War, and could flare up again at any moment. These two represent the two sides. So there's one is, is, is from the victor side, one is from the loser's side, although, and they're, they're, they're sort of out engaged carrying on the war in the guise of a civil war on a little out-of-the-way planet, uh, which has no impact on the rest of the, the galaxy. It's just this nasty little civil war going on that they're propping up. Um, and obviously they're not feeling great about that. But then they're sent, one of them is sent off to to this, uh, to go with the trouble dog. Um, and he realises that the only friend he really has is the other agent from the other other side, because they've known each other longer than they've known anyone else. And in a way, because they're enemies, they kind of trust each other more than they trust anyone else. So it's it's an interesting, an interesting relationship in that in some ways they're a bit like a married couple in that they've they've been together for ages, um, but underneath it they really hate and want to kill each other. So uh, actually, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? A really bad definition of marriage. Um, yeah, but yeah, and um, and um, but they 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 do come to trust each other, I think, and they they are kind of unlikely friends um but they kind of represent the larger conflict in that the two sides of humanity have kind of fought themselves to a standstill but they're still part of the generality of mankind so they're still together and they're still kind of friends but they've had this bitter fight going on and they're trying to build bridges so they kind of represent the larger galactic situation um on board the ship um and they also give the crew some problems and things to bounce off and so on. So it's, um, yeah, they become, it's, it's like they're just a personification of the situation, really. I mean, when I, when we start reading about them and seeing them on this jungle planet, I had this kind of weird 
vision of Earth of this banana republic and a, a Soviet and an American agent who have been, both been fighting, propping up each other in the Civil War, but they know each other enough to have tea together and then go back and go arm both sides of the conflict just keep going on and on, except you've reported that sort of almost Cold War mentality, as you said, the embers of war into a galactic situation on a backwater planet. Yeah, it's very much kind of like that. Um, I think what I, I, I vaguely had in mind when I was doing it was sort of some sort of Graham Greene um, spies from different sides meeting up for tea, as you say, um, and, you know, exchanging formalities and, and, you know, gradually becoming friends because they're so far from their commanders. Uh, they're so far from their chain of command that the, the only people they can really talk to are each other. Um, and uh, I was thinking also of um, the film uh, Air America with uh, Robert That's Downey awesome. Jr. and Mel Gibson about uh, sort of Americans flying guns into La- Laos or, or wherever it was. And, yeah, so there's that kind of vibe to it as well, that, you know, he's importing these weapons in the guise of humanitarian supplies and stuff. So, um yeah, it was that kind of yeah that kind of spy vibe that I wanted to get and uh, sort of play with as well. And um, yeah, I think it kind of it kind of slotted nicely into the into the because everyone else was in the military and these guys were sort of the spies and the sort of CIA equivalent. So it, it, there was a a nice kind of uh, juxtaposition between them. So I actually want to go back to the House of Reclamation. Did you have any specific like inspiration for that? Because it's such an interesting organization in that it's not directly tied to any government. Um, the, the specific inspiration for the house and, and indeed for the entire book um, came when I was reading about the Titanic. of all And there was a bit in the, the article that mentioned that the Titanic wasn't the first big liner to go down. Um, in the Atlantic, and indeed it wasn't the biggest loss of life because uh, something like a third of the Titanic's passengers got off and were rescued, whereas these other liners that sailed off, they just sailed off from Liverpool one day, and six months later somebody in New York kind of shrugged and thought, well, I guess they're not coming then. But the Titanic had radio, whereas none of these other liners did. So they sailed off, and then if they started sinking in the middle of the Atlantic, they might as well have been on the dark side of the moon. They couldn't contact anybody. Nobody knew where they were. There was, they were just lost in this expanse of water. And nobody even knew they were dead till they, you know, they were so overdue, they kind of figured they had to be. So that just kind of got me thinking that the fact the Titanic had radio, it was able to signal nearby ships to come to its aid. And I thought, well, if the Titanic went down today, we'd have satellite positioning, we'd have planes flying out there, we'd have fast boats going out there. And probably a, a lot more people would be rescued. You know, it took several hours to sink. I'm sure we could get some planes and helicopters to it in that time. And there's so much more traffic around as well. And that kind of got me thinking about the idea of a, a kind of a rescue organization that would, you know, I thought thinking, who would do that? Would it be the Coast Guard? Would it be the lifeboat? Who would, who, who would do that if a, a, a ship went down? And that just kind of got me thinking about a rescue organization. And then what would happen if I kind of transposed that into space where, a kind of in the early days of space travel, it would be like the early days of the liners where you'd fly off into space and something went wrong and no one would know about it. Um, you just wouldn't come back. And then as things got more technically advanced and um, faster than light travel and faster than light communication developed, if a ship, say, went down in a distant star system, it would be able to send a faster than light distress call. 
and another ship would be able to get there in two or three days to to help and to lend assistance. So I developed this idea of an apolitical organisation dedicated to rescuing these ships. And the reason it's our political organisation is obviously because it, because of the war and everything. I wanted a, an organisation where characters from both sides of the war could get together and kind of, a bit like the French Foreign Legion, they could they would discard their previous allegiances and previous uh, lives and kind of start afresh working together. Well, firstly, because that suggested enormous potential for conflict between them, uh, which as an author is something you love. But also it it, it, it was just this, this great idea that, of just like a rescue organization i mentioned thunderbirds in space earlier but it's a bit like international rescue but a bit more kind of a bit more bureaucracy and a bit larger and i really just really liked the idea of the house of reclamation and so just like hearing where that comes from is super interesting yeah as i say it just popped up from reading about the titanic and that's you know that's where they say inspiration just comes from the most unlikely places sometimes so so a more general question you've mentioned ian banks and Emma Newman as as space operas you've read and Ian Banks as a particular inspiration for you writing space opera. What other authors and what other books have have filtered into your brain to get you to write this wide expanse of space opera? We haven't even talked about uh, the gallery yet, but we'll get to that. Well, there's a um, I guess seeing as the majority of the characters in this book are female, I think there's only three male characters that. I kind of can't get away from the kind of shadow of Anne Leckie's ancillary trilogy, which I, I had read before writing this, but I don't feel its style or content particularly influenced me. But there's obviously the the idea that you could write a space opera with diverse voices and diverse characters in terms of, of gender, but also in terms of, sort of ethnicity and so on, and just have these characters there and not have to justify why they're there. Just have them there because they're there. So there's no conversations about, you know, what it's like to be a woman in charge of a spaceship or anything like that. They're just there because that's their job and they're getting on with it. So I guess I kind of I kind of owe that to Anne in a way. But also I've always been in some ways more comfortable writing female characters than male characters. If you look back through my previous novels like the the Macaque books, the Aside from the monkey himself, the main character, Victoria Valois, mm-hmm. is quite a, a rounded um, character. And, and in the recollection, um, Cat, the, the, the main character of Cat, is uh, as well. So I, I seem, for some reason, to be drawn to female characters as, as main characters more than, than to male characters for some reason. And I think, I don't know why that is, but I think it might be just because I've seen and read less of them. So it feels more more creative and more original to be writing female characters in that situation than, than, than sort of drawing on the huge history of, of sort of male characters in some ways. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, I have a secret feminine side urging to burst out from behind this bearded exterior. But there's, you know, I, for some reason I, I have. So in some ways I can attribute that to Anne. In other ways, the twists and turns of my psychology. Okay, how about a more general world-building sense beyond the characters, the set up the empires, Big dumb objects, AIs. What 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 other space operas have filtered through your brain to uh, provide the tapestry for these characters to uh, act upon? I've always been a fan of space opera. I mean, it, I think it's it's one of the most enduring subgenres of science fiction. It's kind of like the background radiation of science fiction. It's always there and it's always crumbling away. I like that. 
so I've, I've read you know, uh, a long way to a small angry planet i read recently as well i thoroughly enjoyed that's become one of my comfort books now um because it's just such a nice book you just get so involved with the, the crew and, and and kind of you know it, it, it makes you feel good so yeah i enjoyed that one that's got some interesting background to it with the different races and customs and so on but i've also been reading um the expanse novels i've read all seven of those as well recently and, and enjoyed them a lot but going back further than that there's uh like frederick pole's gateway was an early influence and one of my favorite books of all time is uh, sam delaney's nova Ah, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, I think you can see the influence of that most clearly on the recollection, probably, in that it's a sort of a quest narrative. And the Nova is, is a, as it keeps telling you, a grail quest narrative set in a sort of space opera background. Um, and it's just sort of a, a glorious mashup between pulp and literary fiction because it's written in quite a literary style and he plays lots of literary games like ch- characters start a sentence in one chapter and finish it in another and so on. Um, and there's a character who wants to be a novelist, even though the novel is a dead form in his time. And he's constantly berating the other characters with these literary theories he's come up with about how to write a novel, none of which are particularly good. And you know that he will never, ever, ever get around to actually writing it because he's too busy talking about it. Um, but that kind of let, allows the book to comment on itself as it goes along. And he, there's a lot of tarot lore in there as well. Um, but that's, that's a, a book where there's a lot of kind of background world building, um, just mentioned in passing. And you as the reader have kind of pieced together the picture as you go along, which I like. I like that. I like that about the original Star Wars film. You know, when Ben Kenobi said, your father fought with me in the Clone Wars, and everyone in the cinema going, what the hell are the Clone Wars? (laughs) But we never found out. It was never mentioned again. Um, And there was all this kind of, um, this mystery. um, Made the Kessel Run. What's the Kessel Run? You know, who's Jabba the Hutt? All of this. And that's what I loved, because it opened the imagination wide open. And you could have thought Clone Wars, that, oh, that must be really good. And, you know, Clones Wars, are, um, you know. And, uh, you know, the second film, who's Boba Fett, you know? But if they ever do, a, like, a Boba Fett origin story and he takes his hat, takes his helmet off, it's just going to ruin it. And the same, I, I think, with, with, with the, the young Han Solo film, it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. But I don't really want to see how Han got the Millennium Vulcan off Lando. And I don't want to see it do the Kessel Run. So it's like in Star Trek. I never really wanted to see Kirk do the Kobayashi Maru. I just wanted to hear about it because your imagination kind of gets these things kind of much more fired up. And that's why I think in um, Embers of War, I mentioned lots of alien species, some of which I only mentioned by name. But I tried to give them kind of evocative names. Um, and I tried to give the star systems evocative names. At one point I mentioned that there's a, a, a trading ship from the Goblet Cluster. But I don't explain what the Goblet Cluster is or where it's from. It's just there. It's just part of the background. I think, judging by what people have come back and said, they they get the impression there's this huge iceberg of world building and they're just seeing the tip of it. And that's that's one of the things I love about science fiction is when they're able to do that. And this is a trilogy, so... 
Yeah, there's Trinity, so there's more to come. We do. I've already written the second book, and I've got, yeah. I've got six, six months to write the third one now. But it's, yeah, in, in the second book, we definitely do meet some more stuff, but also some more questions get risen as well. So it's um, there's, there's plenty more to come. And I'm hoping with this one, um, after this trilogy is, is done and dusted, there will still be more stories within that universe that I could maybe tell in the future. So I'm kind of setting up a big, I don't want to give you pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of exposition. I want there to be plenty more stuff to find out and to look forward to finding out about in the future. That's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, so one more thing about the world building I really liked was the gallery and it's, and these alien big dumb carved sculptures in space. Where in the world did you come up with this idea? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I knew I, I, I wanted the – I had to find a place for the liner to crash that would be interesting. And I came up with this idea of – sort of crashing somewhere where there was this huge labyrinth. And I, I thought about a world completely covered in a carved labyrinth. And then I got the idea that, it, you know, if it, it could look like a brain. Um, and then as soon as I got that, I thought, well, you know, why not have a whole host of them? So pretty randomly, I just wrote down some descriptions. I think there's ones called the dodecahedron and then there's one called the broken clock and the inverted city. Because they sounded good, but also I determinedly didn't describe any of them. I just said that they were named after their appearances. So that that gives the reader, as, as I was just saying about allowing your imagination to, to, to take flight, to kind of think, wow, uh, the inverted city, what the hell is that? And so on. And so it, it kind of, it, it, I only really described the brain, um, but all the, all the others are kind of there in the background and people, come up to me i loved all these objects and i was kind of i was thinking well i didn't actually describe any of them but your mind has filled in the gaps and that's what you're loving so that's a really satisfying thing to do as a writer just to plant the seeds and watch them flower i mean one of the first space operas i i read back in the day was ring world so when you're describing big dumb objects i'm going my eyes are going like the jagged bolt what the heck is that what does that look like and so yeah my mind's just like leaping to uh imagine these giant giant plant sized sculptures circling around this uh this sun that's sitting between uh two uh conflicting empires. Which was a really ni- nice bit of world building having it sit right right in the heart of a basically a neutral zone, which helped amp up the conflict between uh the rival powers and pull in the spies and propel the propel the novel. Yes, it was, uh, you know, right on a political fault line. So it's going back to, you know, everything in this novel is about the war. So it's, um, the act, they might accidentally start it up again and it might be bigger and worse this time. So it's, uh, it really puts the stakes, kind of raises the stakes. I mean, I don't know if you're a role player, but I just go think back when, you, when you're describing this and all these systems. Uh, I, I, I think back to the traveler role playing game with big star maps and having these empires and, these little worlds in between where conflicts could erupt and and any, anything might happen to uh, spark off a, a larger uh, war. Yeah, when, when I was sort of 11 or 12, I, I was really into the Traveller role-playing game. Um, I had all the supplements and uh, 
I still got them on my bookshelf, actually, all sort of the original rule books and stuff, and the um, the Atlas of the Imperium and so on. So mm, yes, yeah, I used to pore over endless maps of the Spinwood Marches and so on. So there is kind of that that kind of aspect to it, but kind of unlike Traveller, it's kind of I've tried to make it more three dimensional maps rather than two dimensional kind of um, you know just like a, a, a two-dimensional map, it, it seemed very strange to be hopping around these, kind of following the Spinwood main, right, when you think, well, there should be a, sh-, you know, why doesn't it not extend in three dimensions? Well, it's only two dimensions, but um, those were the constraints of paper in those days. But yes, I've tried to make them slightly more amorphous, so no one's entirely sure exactly where the, the borders are, but, you know, it, it's kind of sort of almost like borders at sea as opposed to on land that you only kind of know you've crossed one because your sort of navigation software says, you know, we, we've crossed a border, even though there's, a, there's nothing there. There's just, you know, more sea. But um, it's kind of this arbitrary line set it set it on the on the sea, or in this case, on the vacuum, um, which makes it seem more futile as well um, and more symbolic than just, uh, you know, they don't, they don't rock up and there's a, a big fence um with some aliens in spacesuits saying passports please it's just this <laughs> these kind of strange hinterlands and, and liminal spaces between these great slightly antag- antagonistic powers so gareth where can everybody on the internet find you and find your book you can find me at um uh, you can find me on Twitter because I spend most of my life on Twitter at, 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 at Gareth L. Powell. Um, and you can find the book on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble and Waterstones and all the usual book retailers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gareth. Thank you for having me. And with that and scene. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyinfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyinfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyinfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy Infanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.